Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, I'm Marina Yevshan, co-host of the Russia-Ukraine War Report podcast, and today is October the 15th, 2023. It's been 3,519 days since Russia's illegal occupation of Crimea on January 27, 2014, and one year and 234 days since Russia expanded its war of aggression against Ukraine. Today's podcast covers the key events that happened over the weekend. During today's podcast, you can use a Russia-Ukraine war map to help you visualize the areas discussed, and there is a link in the podcast description. There are more updates today. The Russia-Ukraine War Report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from our direct contacts and journalists in Ukraine, the Russian Ministry of Defense and the Ukrainian General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine Morning Reports, Operational Commands North, South and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geospatial experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mail bloggers and social media channels with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with the daily assessment. We maintain the soft response by Ukraine's allies after Russian aggression on Ukraine's border will eventually lead to a significant incident that could result in military intervention with Romanian reporting another drone strike on Saturday. The Ukrainian summer fall counteroffensive is likely reaching its culmination point due to a number of factors, even though Ukraine still maintains significant combat potential. We maintain that the Russian Federation has launched multiple large-scale attacks in an attempt to force Ukraine to utilize its reserve forces and accelerate the consumption of ammunition, with the United States military aid remaining in limbo. While Russia has taken the initiative in three areas of operation, AO, the poorly executed offensives have caused catastrophic Russian losses. We assess that the new Russian offensive has exposed the degradation of their artillery capabilities due to a shortage of replacement barrels, a lack of powder charges, and the reluctance to use full charges for maximum range to preserve the lifespan of existing barrels. The removal of the United States Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, has put future Ukrainian military operations at risk. We further assess that the abrupt ending of U.S. military aid will be catastrophic if a resolution is not reached within the next 11 to 18 days. We are pessimistic that Congress is capable of seating a new speaker in the near future. Additionally, Western partners are not meeting their promised military training, including for F-16 pilots, heavy equipment and ammunition delivery dates, and these continued delays are negatively impacting Ukraine's military capabilities. The Kremlin is using the Israel-Hamas war as a distraction in the information space to fracture support for Ukraine further, and has engaged in large-scale disinformation campaigns. We maintain that Russia is stockpiling missiles for large-scale attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure, as the weather continues to degrade and the activity to destroy Ukraine's electrical system has started. 
Finally, while the possibility of an intentional nuclear accident caused by Russian occupiers at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant remains low, the threat should be taken seriously. Once again, today's action report starts in Kharkiv. In the Kupiansk operational area, AO, the situation remains challenging for Ukrainian forces. Mutual combat continued near Sinkivka and east of Ivanivka, and Ukrainian forces conducted offensive operations near Leman Pershy. The commander of the ground forces of the Ukrainian armed forces, Colonel General Oleksandr Sirsky, said that the situation in the Kupiansk region was difficult. Quote, the enemy, after the losses inflicted, recovered in two months and began active offensive actions in the Kupiansk direction. Heavy fighting continues. The main objective of the enemy is the defeat of the grouping of our troops, the encirclement of Kupiansk and the withdrawal of Ukrainian forces to the border of the Oskil River. Unquote. Relatives of Mobiks assigned to the Russian 12th Guards tank army appealed for help, claiming 42 members who rioted are being held in an illegal basement prison. Quote, on October the 7th, the guys came under artillery fire, which led to the loss of more than 300 people. For refusing to continue the offensive without sufficient weapons and ammunition, the survivors were taken to Zaitseva the next day. They reported that they were being held, tortured and beaten. They took away the phones and no one else got in touch." Unquote. The Mobics are from the Moscow region, and family members contacted the local prosecutor's office, who never responded. Moving on to the situation in the Donbass, we start in Luhansk. In the Svatove AO, the intensity of the Russian attacks is unchanged, with several assaults in the direction of Makivka. Family members of the Tatarstan battalion from Kazan appealed for their Mobik family members to be rotated from the zero line. Fighting in the Svatova AO, the family members claim that contract soldiers with Storm Z abandoned their positions, and the battalion was sent to the zero line without adequate equipment and no combat training. The family members said the battalion was suffering, quote, colossal losses, and every minute there are reports of wounded and dead. Near Kremina, intense positional fighting continued in the Serebransky woods, and another Russian attempt to advance in the direction of Torske from the Kremina salient ended in failure. In northeastern Donetsk, Ukrainian forces continued consolidating their new positions after advancing in the Klishchivka AO. Russian forces tried to counterattack in the direction of Klishchivka and Andreevka without success. Intense fighting continued in southwestern Donetsk. In the Avdivka AO, the general staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, GSAFU, noted a decrease in the intensity of fighting in the Avdivka and Marienka areas, while adding that they remain the most difficult regions in the theater of war. From the southwestern landings of the Plateau and Vasela, Russian troops again tried to advance toward the Terracon in the direction of the Avdiivka coke plant without success. A brief video clip showed a lone dead Russian soldier on the north slope of the waste heap. Russian sources showed the Ukrainian machine gun position on the Terracon coming under artillery fire, 
confirming that Ukraine maintains control of the heights. Russian mail bloggers reported that Ukraine had extensively mined the approaches in many areas, further complicating advances. A graphic photo showed a dead Russian squad next to a truck and a BTR-50PK armored personnel carrier, APC. The BTR-50 was introduced in 1952, and production ended in 1970. The APC is based on the Soviet-era PT-76 amphibious light tank that entered service in 1951. The PK variant entered service in 1958 and included thin armor added to the roof. Like other Soviet-era APCs and infantry fighting vehicles of the era, they have a fatal design flaw with dismounts using top hatches to exit, exposing them to enemy fire. An unknown number have been removed from deep storage and brought to combat readiness. On the other end of the spectrum, a Russian video showed one of less than a dozen experimental BTR-90s in the Avdiivka area. The APC was built between 2006 and 2011 and was supposed to be deployed with the Rosgvardia, but the program was cancelled. The appearance of a BTR-50 and a BTR-90 in the same offensive is another indicator that Russia's limitless supply of heavy weapons does have limits. GSAFU reported that Russian attacks continued in the area of Tonenke, with no change in the situation. A prominent Russian mail blogger reported a Russian offensive near Severne failed. Russian forces continued their attacks in the direction of Pervomaiske from Piske and continued to suffer significant losses in personnel and armor. Near Vodone, a Ukrainian drone captured a column of Russian armored vehicles bunched up, with one running over its troops and then stopping. While one panicked soldier was trying to remove his foot stuck under its tracks, it was hit by ammunition and exploded. We link to all of the pictures and videos mentioned in today's podcast in our daily situation report. Information on how to become a subscriber is in the podcast description. Or you can search Patreon for the more content. Russian mail blogger Yuri Yevich appealed for medical personnel to take a volunteer vacation in Donetsk due to the extreme casualties caused by the failing Russian offensive. Quote, Our guys are suffering losses. There is a catastrophic shortage of surgeons in Horlivka and Donetsk. We ask all doctors, primarily surgeons and anesthesiologists, who have a conscience and remember their medical oath, to find the opportunity to take a vacation and go to Horlivka Hospital No. 2 for at least a couple of weeks and help with the treatment of the wounded. Unquote. Another Russian volunteer appealed for body bags, saying they are badly needed and there is a horrible deficit in Donetsk. She confirmed what Yevich reported, adding, quote, The guys in hospitals, there's loads of them, really loads, and they really need the help right now. Unquote. Quick assessment. While the intensity of attacks has declined, it is important to note that the fighting is still fierce, and instead of multiple battalions attacking at the same time, it is now companies. Russian forces have punched through Ukrainian defenses in several areas, 
but have been unable to gain military control of these regions. In the Marienka AO, Russian forces supported by the Russian Aerospace Forces, VKS, continued their attempts to capture Marienka, launching 10 attacks with no change in the situation. On Saturday, southeast of Vuhledar, intense fighting was ongoing near Novomukhailivka. Russian forces made marginal gains north of Solotka in the direction of the settlement, and the war map was updated. In the Staromlinivka AO, Russian sources claimed that Russian troops launched a counterattack in the Staromayorske area that was unsuccessful. Continuing along the line of conflict, here is today's update for Zaporizhia. Brigadier General Alexander Tarnavsky, commander of the Operational Strategic Group of Troops Tavria, reported that Ukrainian forces carried out 1,876 fire missions, while Russian forces responded with 901. Ukrainian forces have maintained a 2-to-1 artillery advantage for the last six days. The psychological impact of relentless artillery strikes has caused some Russian troops to reach their breaking point, with the squad surrendering to Ukrainian forces. We are seeing a sharp increase in the number of videos showing Russian troops surrendering, indicating that Ukrainian forces are likely having more tactical success than currently reported. Director of Communications for Operational Command South, OCS, Captain Natalia Humenyuk, said that Russian forces were conducting more airstrikes during the night, while the volume of Russian artillery strikes continued to decrease. Moving to assessment. There have been multiple reports from Russian units and mail bloggers for weeks of a growing problem with worn artillery barrels and a shortage of powder charges. The barrels are wearing out due to overuse and Russia's inability to forge replacements due to their dependency on inputs and a lack of technical capability. Russian artillery units have been told to reduce the total number of fire missions and conserve powder charges. The charges are what launches the artillery shell, and you can use multiple charges to increase the distance a shell travels. The more charges used, the faster the barrel wears out. With a worn barrel, you risk a catastrophic failure known as banana peeling. Russia had a problem with worn barrels a year ago and was able to raid their reserve equipment for spare parts. That resource is becoming increasingly limited. Russian artillery fire is down 55% to 65% compared to June 2022, but none of this is to suggest that Russian artillery is facing an imminent collapse. Ukrainian ground forces have been vocal that Russian troops have reached parity with drone warfare. The challenge for Russian commanders is their dependency on artillery to support their military doctrine and battlefield strategy. According to the Book of Russian Warfare, you need 2,000 shells per square kilometer per day to support offensive operations. That's now impossible outside of point attacks. South of Urihiv, the Russian Ministry of Defense reported that Ukrainian forces were on the offensive at Verbove, and a prominent Russian mail blogger reported that Ukrainian forces continued offensive operations on the northern edge of Novoprokopivka. 
intense mutual fighting was reported west of Robotene, with the Ukrainian forces reportedly attempting to flank the Russian garrison in Kopani. On Saturday, the Special Operation Forces of Ukraine reported that, with the aid of area insurgents, a train in occupied Melitopol was destroyed, damaging 150 meters of track and providing a temporary delay to Russian logistics. It's time to talk about the Black Sea, including the countries of Romania and Bulgaria, occupied Crimea and the Mykolaiv and Odessa regions. Spokesperson for the Ukrainian Navy, Captain Dmitro Platinchuk, reported that the rescue tugboat Professor Nikolai Muru was the second vessel damaged by a Ukrainian Sea Baby uncrewed subsurface vessel on October 13. Russia only has two Project 22870 rescue tugs in the Black Sea fleet, so the mobility kill damage is a serious blow. The tug was towing the Project 22160 petrol boat Pavel Dirjavin back to port when both vessels were attacked and damaged. The Dirjavin was already disabled after it struck a mine on October 11th. In occupied Crimea, repairs to the Kerch-Crimean bridge were completed, with both highway sections reopened. Heavy truck traffic remains restricted. In Free Kherson, Kherson Oblast Administrative and Military Governor Oleksandr Prokudin said Russia carried out 107 fire missions firing 622 munitions, rockets, drone-delivered IEDs and bombs, striking the city of Kherson 45 times. Residential areas were targeted, as was a shopping area in the Dnipro district, an educational institution, a cultural center and the post office. Two people were killed, including a woman in Bereslav, when her apartment took a direct hit from an artillery shell killing her instantly. Two more people were injured. In occupied Kherson, the Crimean Tatar insurgent organization Atesh reported that the Russian ammunition depot that supports the 61st Brigade was destroyed on October 10. The Russian supply node was located in Ivanivka on the M14 highway, the main ground line of communication G-Log, supply line, between Crimea and Donetsk. Multiple Russian sources reported that Ukrainian forces targeted three bridges with precision munitions and rockets fired by HIMARS in Novakakhovka, Tsukuri, and north of Chornyanka, targeting the T-2206, T-2210, and T-2202 highways, all critical Russian GLOGs. Let's talk about events that happened on the Russian front. Armod claimed that 27 drones were shot down in the Kursk, Bryansk and Belgorod regions. Debris landed in the Kursk village of Zorina without causing significant damage or casualties. Before I talk about theater-wide events, a quick footnote. We are covering the Israel-Hamas war and have started situation reports available through our Patreon. 
$5 a month gets you in-depth information about the Russia-Ukraine and Israel-Hamas war. There is a link in the podcast description. And now on to theater-wide events. The coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council in the White House, John Kirby, said that North Korea had provided Russia with 1,000 shipping containers of military equipment and ammunition. Kirby claimed that between September 7 and October 1, a Russian-flagged ship carried the cargo from a North Korean ammunition depot to a Russian port, where the cargo was transferred to military warehouses. The White House released satellite images to support the claim. Boeing and Saab announced that the ground-launched small-diameter bombs GLSDB that M142 and M270 HIMARS can fire will soon be shipped to Ukraine. The GLSDB takes an M26 rocket engine and attaches a GBU-39 130kg small-diameter bomb to it. After deployment, wings are extended and the 93kg warhead is delivered to its target, using GPS guidance. The improvement is that GLSDB will extend the range of HIMARS to 150 km, and once released from the rocket body, the bomb and wing assembly will be difficult to track, target, and intercept. United States news agency Politico reported that Ukrainian pilots have proven they can speak fluent English and will start their F-16 air combat training this coming week in Arizona. Finally, the head of the Public Relations Service of the Command of the Ground Forces of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, Volodymyr Fityo, said that all persons who are liable for military service must independently appear at the commissariat to verify the information, including female doctors. The audit is being conducted so that, quote, the resources that currently exist in the TCK are used correctly, as well as to provide a deferment to those who are entitled to it. Russian propagandists jumped on the announcement, hoping that their readers had forgotten that the Russian Federation went through a similar process in March and April 2023. We didn't forget. The head of the Avdiivka City Military Administration, Vitaly Barabash, said that the Kremlin had tasked the Russian armed forces to capture all of the Donetsk region by the end of the year. And that is what caused the offensive in the Avdiivka IO. Moving to assessment. Based on the catastrophic losses Russia has suffered this week, clear signs of equipment shortages and a lack of artillery support and the amount of territory that needs to be captured from Siversk to Velikonovosilka north to Kramatorsk and Slovyansk, it is practically impossible for the Russian Federation armed forces to complete this requirement by the end of the year. It would take a catastrophic collapse of the Ukrainian military or the introduction of seaborne weapons. The Prime Minister of Poland, Mateusz Morawiecki, said that his nation would continue to transfer weapons to Ukraine based on existing obligations and contracts, but called for other nations to help Ukraine more. Let me translate this for you. Hey, United States, get your act together. Morawiecki said, quote, We are currently transferring to Ukraine only weapons that it has contracted, 
as we ourselves are strengthening our army through production and procurement. And we encourage others to transfer weapons to Ukraine. Unquote. I'll give you a moment to protect your favorite coffee cup before I read today's last entry. Ready? The deputy head of the office of the president of Ukraine, Igor Zhovkova, said that the center for training F-16 pilots in Romania, which was going to open in June, if you remember, will open by the end of 2023. Quote, Unfortunately, very little attention is paid to the fact that Romania will provide its airfields for the training of Ukrainian pilots. It was also discussed, and by the end of the year the corresponding training center will open. It will not only be for Ukrainian pilots, it will be for NATO member states. But Ukrainian pilots will train at the same level as pilots from Romania and other NATO members. They will train on planes provided to them by members of the aviation coalition. Unquote. Zhovkva called Romania, quote, one of our most reliable allies and stressed that the delay is due to a lack of F-16 aircraft at the training center. Thank you for the listening to the Russia-Ukraine war report. Your support of my home, Ukraine, helps us make history and protect the future for all. Now, let me turn the podcast over to my executive producer and co-host Zarina Zabrisky. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Last week, tragedy struck when Russian forces launched their missile strike on a cafe in the village of Groza in Kharkiv Oblast, Ukraine, resulting in the loss of 59 lives. These victims of various professions and generations were identified through the diligent work of police forensic experts utilizing mobile DNA labs. The further investigation revealed that two local residents, both former policemen, who had collaborated with Russian forces during the occupation, adjusted the missile's target coordinates. I spoke to a Ukrainian journalist and producer, Dmitro Kazantsev, who reported from the site. So local people told me that, for example, before the war, uh, there were 300 people living in this village. Then the war happened, people tried to flee. Then the village was liberated, not everybody came back. So for now, there were 150 people. And imagine, just only because of one shot, one-third of the population of the village died. All the people know each other. It's like a big, big family, because many of those people are relatives. Even if they are not relatives, they know each other well. They help each other, because there are lots of farmers. These are working people, and you know, when people are working, they are really united. For example, there is one street in that village, and there is a house, which is empty, completely empty, because all the family died that day. Did you get to speak to people? Are they okay speaking to journalists? There are two reactions. People or don't want to talk, or as soon as they start talking, they start crying. Because you, 
the war is going on a very long time already. And it seems like we saw a lot, but for these people, this is something uh, unbelievable. We saw a man, he was riding a bicycle. If I'm not mistaken, his name was Volodymyr. And he said that he lost uh, his wife, his son, and his daughter-in-law. And he stayed with uh, two grandchildren. And still people uh, are waiting for the bodies from the morgue because I think there are still some difficulties to identify some bodies. Because, for example, we met uh, a woman today who has four members of the family who died. And she, as far as I understood, only two of them uh, were recognized. The cafe and the grocery store where they were all gathered is there anything left? No, it's only ruins like the bricks and uh, almost almost nothing. Almost nothing. What kind of weapon did they use? Look, uh, this village is about 35 kilometers from the front line. So for Grad, it's not reachable. This was what media says mainly. It was Iskander. It was a very expensive and very precise weapon. We also asked people, local people, what's their idea? And uh, some people have the idea that uh, maybe there is some, uh, like we say, betrayer, a person who wants to sell some information to Russians uh, and to sell it as more expensive as he can. Everybody knew that that would be the morning ceremony for a military guy. So people say that probably this betrayer could tell Russians that if it's the ceremony dedicated to the military, probably a lot of militaries will come to the place. And probably that was the reason why Russians decided to use this precise and very expensive weapon to kill so many people at once. We talked to local people. They said that there were no militaries because all all the 51, 52, yeah, mm-hmm. 50, half, half 100 people who died, they are all civilians. All civilians. There was a child among yeah. them. And even the family of the soldier who died in uh, 2022, and he was reburied here on his, like, in homeland, I, as far as I understood. Is there anything that is being done for these people? Uh, yes, uh, there is uh, a social service, and they will help people to arrange all the funerals. And right now they are preparing the place for maybe at least 40 graves. Andrei Kozer, the resident of Hroza, joined the army in the beginning of the war and was killed defending Popasna in Donbass. He was buried then in Dnipropetrovsk region. His son, Denis, who returned from work in Poland and also joined the military, demobilized in June due to health issues. Denis, his mother, Andre's wife decided to bury Andre at their home village of Rosa. The explosion killed Dennis, his mother, his wife, grandparents, and mother-in-law. In one family, a mother, father, grandmother, and grandfather died, and the children are now orphans aged 17, 15, and 10. A 25-year-old woman lost her mother and friends. Another woman lost her mother and father her husband is a soldier in Bakhmut in Donbass, and she's left home alone. Volodymyr, a 70-year-old Hroza resident, lost his wife of 50 years, his son and daughter-in-law. 
Another elderly resident lost his whole family, except for his three grandchildren, and he now will be raising them alone. The Kremlin went on to justify the mass murder at the United Nations meeting by suggesting it was a funeral service for a high-ranking Ukrainian quote-unquote nationalist. He said that many attendees were neo-Nazis and suggested that the strike specifically targeted men of draft age. This pattern, seeking neo-Nazis everywhere, has become disturbingly routine. Last summer, the Kremlin went to the extent of accusing Israel of supporting the, quote, neo-Nazi regime, unquote, in Kiev. Furthermore, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov revived an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory by claiming that Adolf Hitler had Jewish blood, a statement Israel found unforgivable and outrageous. After October 7th, 2023, when the world witnessed Hamas launching an attack on Israel, Vladimir Putin failed to send a formal condolences to Israel. The Kremlin's peculiar fixation on neo-Nazis is a perplexing paradox. We will delve into the weaponization of history, the formation of national identity of Russia, and the Kremlin manipulative narratives with Adam Jiva, who is based in Ukraine. As we discussed in our last segment, Russia has this obsession with portraying Ukraine as being a far-right country governed by neo-Nazis. One would think that the best population to consult about that would be the Jewish population in Ukraine. Because I think, as we all know, the population that is most sensitive to the existence of Nazis would be the Jewish population. Now, I'm based in Odessa, which has historically been one of the leading centers of Jewish culture. From the early 1800s to the mid-20th century, this was one of the centers of global Jewish life. And there's still a very large Jewish population in this city. It's undercounted. Official statistics from the last census that was conducted in the early 2000s suggest that there's only about 12,000 Jews in Odessa. Local Jewish leaders have estimated the real number is at least four times larger. So they're thinking maybe about 50,000 Jews or more, which equals to about 5% of the city. That's very significant. Now, what does this Jewish population think about Nazism in Ukraine? I interviewed multiple figures from the lead synagogue, uh, Chabad Odessa, uh, in, in, in southern Ukraine, and they just found it absurd that anyone would think that, you know, Ukraine is filled with Nazis. They were actually very proud of the fact that Jews were so accepted in Ukraine. They were proud of the fact that in the late 2010s, for about two years, there were only two countries in the world that had a Jewish president, prime minister, and that was Ukraine and Israel. They were proud of the fact that in Odessa and in pretty much every major city, a Jew could have access to every single part of Jewish life. They could have their bar mitzvah, they could go to the synagogue, they could have their uh, Jewish kindergartens, their Jewish nursing homes, and life was good for them. 
but then the war came and shattered Jewish life and shattered Jewish institutions. I've witnessed the information warfare targeting the Jewish population worldwide, and they were the letters that were emailed from a person to person and spread on social media as well, and sending us back to the experiences of World War II and bringing up the narratives of the Ukrainians who became collaborators with the Nazis and were responsible for the deaths of multiple Jews. You know, this level of collaboration did exist to a certain extent, and we shouldn't deny that that happened. Does that mean that Ukraine today is filled with Nazis? Absolutely not. That would be like saying Germany is filled with Nazis or France is filled with Nazis. Most of Europe collaborated with the Nazis when they were occupied by the Nazis. To say that Ukraine uniquely should be called a Nazi country because Ukrainians' great-grandfathers is absurd. You have to look at the situation as it exists right now. You have to ask the Jewish community in Ukraine right now what they think. And the fact is that there has been so much discourse about Nazism in Ukraine, and for some reason, no one is asking the Jews in Ukraine what they think. Not even international media outlets that should know better. Keep in mind that when we look at the anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe, yes, part of it is historical and it is something that can be traced back to you know specific countries or nations, but also a lot of it was reinforced from Moscow via Soviet-era policies that formally discriminated against Jews. And, and not even Soviet, even before that. I mean, the Russian Empire was deeply anti-Semitic and only allowed Jews to settle on the Western fringes of its empire. So you have Russia, both in its imperial form and its Soviet form, legally discriminating against Jews and entrenching anti-Semitic attitudes all across this part of the world. Of course, you're gonna see a little bit of anti-Semitism in Ukraine in the, in the early 90s, as Ukraine was trying to escape the shadow of Soviet rule. And, and many Jews will talk about that. They'll talk about that anti-Semitism that they experienced in the 90s, and they literally call it Soviet-style thinking. The immigrants, say, from Odessa who settled in Brooklyn in the 90s and have not visited Odessa or Ukraine since then, still have the old-style thinking. They still have the memory of Odessa as it used to be during the Soviet Union. And when they receive such a letter in their email, they would trust that and that would uh, incur the damage and that would turn the public opinion at the end of the day against Ukraine. I think there's a problem here where people are thinking about memories from 30 years ago or crimes committed 70, 80 years ago and not listening to Jewish Ukrainians today. And I think we just really need to, once again, I cannot emphasize this enough, listen to Jewish Ukrainians today and Jewish leaders have repeatedly emphasized that they feel comfortable in their country. They're proud of the level of Jewish integration and acceptance they see in their country. They've written open letters asking for as much aid as possible, and they do not want to be quote-unquote liberated or quote-unquote denazified by a country that historically has been the engine of anti-Semitism in the region. Thank you so much for your research. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.